So the USA women's 4 by 400 meter relay team has long dominated the track and field world stage. Prior to August, they had won seven of the last eight world championships, all the way back to 2005. So as you can imagine, they were highly favored going into the world championships this past August in Budapest, but they didn't even make it to the finals. They were disqualified in a preliminary round because they had a failed exchange, a bad handoff. When it comes to relays, exchanges are everything. You can have all the best runners, the best runners in the world, but if you can't make a good exchange, you won't even finish the race. And so, as you can imagine, relay partners spend a lot of time practicing exchanges, rehearsing handoffs, and speaking very generally, here's the key to a good exchange. It's running in sync. It's running together, matching form, mimicking movement. It's two people learning how to run as one. And usually, it's the latter runner who conforms herself to the former. A good exchange means everything. Through the month of December, we're going to focus on the Great Commission, which is an exchange of sorts, in which Jesus passes the baton of his mission and his ministry to the church. And when we talk about the Great Commission, what maybe comes to mind for many of you is Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. It's kind of the hallmark verse for the Great Commission. But in truth, this is just one of many examples in the Gospels where Jesus communicates this idea that he is, in a very real way, handing off his mission and his ministry to the church. So this morning, we're going to look at one of those other examples that we find in the Gospels. We're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Now, before we jump into the passage, let me just quickly help us locate this passage within John's Gospel. So at this point in John's Gospel, Jesus has already been crucified. And he's already been resurrected. And this is just a short time later, roughly 12 hours. So the apostles have heard that the tomb is empty. And now, out of shock of what's happened and fear because of retribution from the Jewish leaders, they are huddled in a house in Jerusalem behind a locked door. And they're just waiting to try to figure out what to do next. That's the context for our passage this morning. So let's look at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So we see this clear commissioning statement in verse 21. Jesus says to the apostles, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, Up to this point in John's gospel, Jesus is said to have been sent by God more than 40 times. So up to this point, Jesus is clearly the one who has been characterized as the one who has been sent. But John now wants us to see a shift. He wants us to see that Jesus is not just the one who has been sent, but also the one who sends. He wants us to see that Jesus is passing the baton. 
And the church will become an extension of Jesus' mission and ministry. And this is indeed for us a shared cooperative commission. Every you that you see here in this passage, every command, if you look back in the Greek, it's a second person plural, not a singular. So Jesus is literally saying, I am sending you all. Right? We're sent together. And far from being a subcategory of the church's purpose, this reality of being sent is at the very heart of discipleship to Jesus. Just as the Father sent the Son as an agent of salvation, so now the Son sends the church as an agent of salvation. And while there are certainly differences in the way Jesus and the church operate as agents of salvation, if we are going to make a good exchange, we must also take note of the similarities. If we're going to be the next leg in the mission and ministry of Christ Jesus, then we must look back to see what kind of race he has run so that we might match his form and mimic his movement and conform ourselves so as to run as one with him. So that's what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning. I want us to talk about three ways that we, the church, are to reflect Christ as we endeavor to carry on this baton of his mission. Namely, that we are to engage with the mission of God physically, purposefully, and powerfully. So we're going to look at these principles as we find them in John chapter 20, and we're also going to turn back to John chapter 1 each time and look at how Jesus embodies these principles. So let's start by talking about engaging with the mission of God physically. If you drive around town this time of year, you'll notice that there are nativities that have started popping up, sprinkled throughout lawns here and there throughout the city. And we pass by most of those nativities without really giving them a second glance, without really pausing to consider what it is that we're, we're looking at when we look at a nativity scene. Listen to how John describes what we're looking at back in John 1. He says, And the word became flesh, took on a physical body, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we look at a nativity, we are peering into possibly the greatest and most profound mystery of Christianity, that the all-knowing, all-powerful, immortal creator of the universe came physically to earth to dwell among his creation, that the holy maker of man became himself a man, and not just a man, but a helpless baby born to a virgin and her fiancé who then sweated, fed and swaddled and burped this little God baby while he grew in wisdom and stature. And this God baby grew into a God man who would go on to hang on a cross to atone for our sin. His real, physical, sweating brow received a thorny crown. His real, physical, calloused hands received sharp nails. His real, physical, fleshy side was pierced by a pointed spear. He bled real, red human blood so as to atone for our real, red human blood. And then, after three days, that real, physical heart started beating again. And those real, physical lungs, which had been emptied of air started to breathe again. So that when Jesus shows up among the apostles in John chapter 20, he actually proves his identity to them by showing them his resurrected body, the wounds on his hands and on his side. 
And what's fascinating is that Jesus' physicality is so fundamental to his disciples' understanding of who he is that they were not moved to gladness until they saw his body. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. In his mission to save us from sin and death, in his mission to restore us to fellowship with himself, God didn't just call down from heaven. He showed up on earth. God's method for mission was not simply mouth to ear, but shoulder to shoulder and hand to hand. And the nativity reminds us that God chose to leave his heavenly place of safety and security and to enter into our world, which is full of evil and dysfunction and pain. The Father sent the Son physically, And so the Son sends the church physically. Now that might seem like common sense, but in a world of text messages and social media and Zoom calls and even virtual reality church, which is a thing, the physicality of the Great Commission can no longer be assumed. Technology, for all its benefits, can disturb and confuse the physical nature of the Great Commission. And I'm not opposed to technology. I acknowledge all of technology's benefits and how it can actually be a helpful tool for the church as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission. But we cannot let technology strip the Great Commission of its physicality. As the Father sent the Son physically, so we are sent physically. So what does that look like for us? What does it look like to be sent physically? Well, first, I would say, this is something that often gets overlooked, is that we must take care of our bodies. Not worship our bodies. That may be a great uh, temptation in our society to worship our bodies. So it's not that, but it is to take care of them. Because it's in these bodies that we live out the mission of God physically. So Robert Murray McShane lived in the early 19th century, is possibly Scotland's greatest preacher and evangelist of all time, died at the age of 29 partly because he overworked himself and he didn't take care of his body. And it's reported that as he lay on his deathbed, he said this, The Lord gave me a horse to ride and a message to deliver. Alas, I have killed the horse and cannot deliver the message. God has given us a body and he's given us a message. And we cannot, by our willful neglect, kill the body. Now God, in his sovereignty, has rightly numbered all of our days. And unless the Lord returns, we're all going to die. We acknowledge that. But we cannot be guilty of willful neglect. Which means, very practically, this. Getting enough sleep, proper exercise, proper nutrition, those are components not of just glorifying God with our bodies, but of having a long-term vision for the Great Commission. So the first way that we can engage with the mission of God physically is to just take care of our bodies. Second way, and it's not profound, is to just be with people. Just be with people. In May, the U.S. Surgeon General released a nationwide advisory titled, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. And the advisory stated that about half of U.S. adults experience measurable levels of loneliness and that that measurable level of loneliness can be as bad for a person's health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's the U.S. Surgeon General saying that. The report acknowledges that people are digitally more connected than ever 
but that those connections are just proving not meaningful. Listen, if there is any group of people that is equipped to confront the issue of loneliness, it is the church. And it's not because we're out to solve the loneliness epidemic. It's because we worship a Savior who came physically and we obey a Savior who sins physically. We show up when others don't and we show up when others won't. Our commission requires and our circumstances beg that we be with people. Have you met your neighbors? Do you know your coworkers? Have you introduced yourself to other people in your classes or other people at the gym? When that moment comes, comes for all of us, when that moment comes, when we have the opportunity to either move toward another human being and be with them physically, which can sometimes be uncomfortable or awkward, or to withdraw into the safety and security of just being with ourselves, what will we choose? Make the choice to be with people. We must engage with God's mission physically. That's the first key point this morning. The second one is this, that we must engage with the mission of God purposefully. This is what John has to say about Jesus' purpose back in John chapter 1. He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus' mission had a clear purpose. He came to us as life when we were dead in our sin. He came to us as light when we were blind in our rebellion. At the end of the day, Jesus did not come to be a wise teacher or to reorder society or to establish a government or to become the poster boy for our personal or corporate agendas, however righteous we might think they are. At the end of the day, Jesus came so that all who would humble themselves and turn from sin and trust in him would be made righteous before God, would be born again as children of God into an everlasting kingdom. And so it is that as the Father sends the Son purposefully, so the Son sends the church purposefully. Verse 23, John John 20, verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, this can be a tricky passage to interpret, but it helps us to remember a couple of things. The first thing we need to remember is the audience. The you here is plural. Jesus is not speaking to any one person. He's speaking to the apostles collectively. The apostles would go on to establish the church. And as time went along, the authority that Jesus gave to the apostles to give or withhold forgiveness would be extended to the local church. Which means that this is a shared, cooperative commission. Second thing we need to remember is the missional context. Jesus is commissioning the church here to carry on his mission and his ministry on earth, which, as we've just seen, is primarily about the forgiveness of sins and restoration to God. So with those things in mind, here's how we understand verse 23. In carrying on Christ's mission to forgive sin and restore to God, the church now exercises a derived authority from God to pronounce forgiveness or lack thereof 
through things like the proclamation of the gospel and baptism, making of disciples and church discipline. We acknowledge that God himself, God alone, God exclusively has the power and the prerogative to forgive sins. We can't do that. But the church, as his appointed agent of salvation in this age, the obedient, spirit-led church becomes the vehicle through which God now does that. Here's what that means practically for us as we think about God's, uh, the, uh, the Great Commission as a church. When we proclaim the gospel, we present the hearer with two options. To trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin or to reject Christ. And if they trust in Christ, then we, the church, have the authority and the imperative to assure them that their sins have been forgiven. To baptize them, to incorporate them into the life of the church and to call them to grow in holiness. If they reject him, we, the church, have the authority and the imperative to warn them of the destructiveness of sin and the eternal condition they face apart from Jesus. It's not because we have direct authority to confer those kinds of benefits or direct authority to impose those kinds of consequences, but because we have a derived authority now to do those things. The Father sent the Son purposefully, and so the Son sends the church purposefully. So how do we engage with the mission of God purposefully? First and foremost, I think, is we maintain God's purpose as a church and as individual people. The mission of the church and your mission as a member thereof is not to make nice people nicer. It's not to make irreligious people religious or to make marginalized or oppressed people exalted and free. The mission of the church is to reach the lost, to make disciples of Jesus, to baptize them into the life of the church, and to teach them everything that Jesus commanded. That's the mission of the church. And I'm convinced that if by God's grace we're faithful to do those things, that people will inevitably become nicer and they will inevitably become more religious and they will be more committed to justice. So are we maintaining God's purpose as a church? Are you maintaining God's purpose individually? Or are we drifting First thing we have to do is maintain God's purpose. And the second thing is to be intentional. If you have a mission, let's say to educate your children or to lose weight or to learn a musical instrument or to keep your lawn green, what are you going to do? You're going to devote significant time and energy toward that end. You're going to build things into your schedule that are important for accomplishing that mission. You're not going to sit back and passively hope that it just happens. You will begin to take action. And your mission will increasingly become a gravitational pole around which everything in your life just begins to revolve. If the church's mission is to make disciples of Jesus who live for the glory of God then we will devote significant time and energy toward that end. We won't sit back passively, waiting, hoping that something happens. We'll begin to take action to do things like pray for the lost, build trust relationships with non-believers in our spheres of influence, share the gospel, send out missionaries, support other evangelistic ministries in our community, ones we're going to learn about next week. And we'll do it together. It's a shared, cooperative commission. So I would just ask you, are you doing some of those things? 
Not necessarily are you even doing all those things. Are, are you doing some of those things? And not are you doing them perfectly, but are you being faithful to do those things? To faithfully pray for the lost, to build trust relationships, to share the gospel. If not, here's a simple place to start. Just identify one or two people in a sphere of influence that God has given you who don't know Jesus and just start inviting them into your life. Invite them into your home. Begin praying consistently for them. And decide to make spiritual conversations a part of what you talk about. And do that early on. Be intentional. So we must engage with God's mission physically and purposefully. Last, we must engage with God's mission powerfully. John writes in his prologue back in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, the eternal way, word made flesh, was God. Our ever-expanding cosmos was made from nothing through him. He is the light that shines in the darkness. He cannot be overcome. He proved his power by his signs and wonders throughout his life and his ministry and most profoundly in his resurrection from the dead. And he proves it yet again here in John chapter 20 where John tells us that the disciples are hiding in a room behind locked doors and suddenly Jesus is among them. How does that happen? I don't know. It was fascinating. But what's even more fascinating, I think, is that after appearing among them by his power, he confers that very power to them. In this display that reminds us of God breathing life into Adam in the Garden of Eden, Jesus breathes the power of the Spirit into his disciples in the shuttered room. And it's precisely this power of the Spirit that compels and empowers the church to go on and be God's agent of salvation in the world. It's precisely this power of the Spirit that authorizes the church to forgive sins and to withhold forgiveness. Now, Here's what we have to remember about the power of the Spirit. Because it would be easy for us to talk about power and to naturally envision big muscles and a booming voice and decisive command. But that's physical power. The Spirit gives spiritual power. And like we talked about several weeks ago, this spiritual power is harnessed not by bowing up, it's by bowing down. Abiding in the Spirit is fundamentally assuming a posture of surrender in our heart. It's about being emptied of this idea that we have the power or the ability to affect spiritual outcomes. It's about being emptied of that idea so that we can be filled with the true reality that God alone in His exclusive power can do those things. We must, like the dog with his master, go belly up. That's where spiritual power is at. And that's a great relief for me when it comes to sharing my faith and making disciples. Because sharing my faith is one of those endeavors that makes me incredibly aware of my weakness and incredibly aware of my inability and my insecurity and my lack of faith. And from the conversations I've had with many others, I would guess that some of you in the room feel that way as well. 
But you're, if you're there with me, then here's what we have to remember, that we are in great company. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 2. He says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Anybody remember picking teams in gym class? Maybe that was a traumatic experience for some of you. (laughs) Here's what happened when you pick teams in gym class. The big, strong, fast, confident kids always got picked first, right? And then the small, weak, slow, timid kids always got picked last. But when it comes to the Great Commission, I'm convinced that Paul would have picked all the last kids first. He would have said, I'll take unassuming. I'll take weak. I'll take not very eloquent. I'll take timid. Give me the one person who knows and believes and has been transformed by the simple gospel and has just enough courage to share it. I'll take that person. Because when the Holy Spirit demonstrates his supernatural power, as that person shares about Jesus, no one in the room, including that person, will be able to attribute the power of what they have just said to anyone other than God. That's the power that God has offered the church. So here are two practical applications for engaging with the mission of God powerfully. The first is to know, believe in, and be transformed by the true and simple gospel message. Listen, you and I cannot make disciples of Jesus if we do not know the gospel. We may make disciples of ourselves, but we will not make disciples of Christ Jesus. If we're going to make disciples of Christ Jesus, we must know the gospel of Christ Jesus. We must grasp it, and it must grasp us. So this morning, if you don't have confidence that you know the truths of the gospel or how to share them with someone else, I would encourage you to do some work to clear that up. And one tool that we started using as a church to help develop our gospel fluency is a tool called Two Ways to Live. There are pamphlets out in the information board by the stairs. You could grab one on your way out this morning, take it home with you, look through it, and learn it. Become familiar with the language, become familiar with the theology, become familiar with some images that can help you communicate the gospel to other people. Because salvation is bound up in the gospel message of Jesus. And God has told us what the message is, but it's up to us to know it. Last thing is that most of us probably need to reframe our thinking when it comes to sharing our faith because most of us are wired to run away either physically or mentally or emotionally to run away when we get scared we want to avoid situations where we feel weak we want to avoid situations where we feel out of control pretty normal human response but over and over and over in the scripture the consistent idea we see is that God's power is made perfect in our weakness So if we want to engage with the mission of God powerfully, we're going to have to learn to override that desire to run away from fear 
that desire to run away from the discomfort that comes from sharing our faith. We're going to have to learn in those situations to love weakness and faith that must be exercised in the face of fear. We'll have to reframe our thinking. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gospel of our salvation. That you would come, take on flesh. That you would dwell among us. That you would face and resist every temptation that we face. That you would bear our sin on the cross and defeat it through the resurrection. That we might become your children by turning from our sin and trusting in you. We pray that as a church, you would help us to be faithful to take the baton and to run. To run the race that you've given us with endurance and with faithfulness. Please help us to be engaged with your mission physically and purposefully and powerfully. And I do pray if there are people in this room who are feeling shame because they feel like they're not doing enough or they could do more or if they're like me, evangelism, making disciples is one of the first things to go when life gets crazy. I pray that you would turn that shame into rejoicing in the gospel and that you would turn that shame into an excitement to join what you're doing in the world around us. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.